Greetings and welcome back once again to the Truth and Print podcast. If you are listening, I greatly appreciate it. Um, I am returning again today on February the 11th. It's Thursday. I'm at home today on a Thursday because it has iced over here in Memphis. Um, So that gives me a little bit of time to talk about what I wanted to talk about today. I had my notes already completed. Um, So today I wanted to talk about predestination, election, free will, and all the how all of those can really work together in a coherent line of thinking. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I'm not anti-creedal and I'm not anti-confessional, but I think theological systems and positional statements don't really do really the the Bible justice, I mean, or at least biblical theology justice. Just an example is, you know, you have several creeds and and confessions that deal with baptism. Um, You know, I think that's one of the hotly debated topics like in the Reformed camp. Um, And the New Testament connects baptism and connection, or baptism and circumcision in some way. And you have Baptists and Presbyterians kind of going back and forth on this theologically, and you can search anywhere. There's just thousands of websites where this debate's going on and on and on. Um, you know, like if you go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, you, you, you see that there's a connection. And whatever you want to say about baptism has to be true about circumcision. Now, for me, that sends a bunch of positional statements put forth by creeds and denominations and theological systems right to the recycling bin. I'm interested in biblical theology, not statements of faith. The same thing goes for election, predestination, free will. Whatever you want to say about election, it has to work in regard to those three items, namely predestination, election, and free will, or the position isn't coherent. So that's sort of the topic that I wanted to get to today. Um, If you know me, and you've known me as a Reformed, quote-unquote, person before, um, this subject today may surprise you a bit, um, but, you know, I'm not... I'm not loyal to a theological system. I'm not loyal to denominations. I'm loyal loyal to what the Bible says. So that's why I wanted to really cover this topic today, because I think there's just so much confusion when you debate from an incoherent theological system. So to tie these threads together, what I'm interested in doing is discussing how three major items can really work together in a coherent system. So you have the subject of predestination that is, or at least that I'm going to sort of use as a launch pad here, the election language of before the foundation of the world. You see that in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. The second is sort of this chain of redemption Romans chapter 8 through chapter 11. 
and then dealing with the launch pad of the free will side of things, Hebrews chapter 2 through 6. And why, why I choose that is because there's many, many commands to not fall away due to unbelief. That is a choice. That, that indicates a choice, a free will. So those, those are the items that I, I'm, I'm going to insist that we have to deal with to create a consistent, coherent theological system. But rather than dealing with those specific three things, what I wanted to do is kind of start with God's choice language of Israel. God's choice of Israel over all nations to be his portion as Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32 verse 9 says so well. Israel is clearly chosen or elected, quote-unquote, by God. And I'll just read some representative passage of that. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then, and then verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And you skip over to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15, Yet the Lord has set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. And then Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The idea seems simple enough, but there are some questions that we have to ask. Number one, if you're an Israelite and your nation was elected by God, chosen out from all of the other nations, were you elect? Number two, is it true that other nations were not elect? And does it stand to reason that to be elect, one had to be an Israelite? Does it further stand to reason that Gentiles were not elect? Question three, were all Israelites saved? And or in other words, believers in Yahweh who would share the afterlife with Yahweh? Question four, if all Israelites were not saved, were they elect? If they were elect, how could they not be saved? Question five, should the concept of election in the Old Testament be viewed as salvation? In other words, are elect and saved synonyms? Then question six, if elect and saved are not synonyms, what is the point of election? So the first question is yes. If you're an Israelite and your nation was elected by God, chosen out from all the other nations, you're elect in the Old Testament. Questions two, is it true the other nations are not elect? Does it stand to reason that to be elect, one had to be an Israelite? Yes. Does it further stand to reason that Gentiles were not elect in the Old Testament? Yes. You know, were all Israelites saved? No, we know that. You can read the Old Testament. I would say... The vast, I, would, I would assert that the vast majority of Israelites were not saved. 
Question four, if they weren't saved, were they elect? If they were elect, how could they not be saved? I would say yes, because election and salvation are not the same thing, though nearly all evangelical theologies just assume that they are. And I think that's where it causes a lot of issues. Then number five, you know, sort of carrying on into that, should the concept of election in the Old Testament be viewed as salvation? In other words, are elect and saved synonyms? No. And no. <laughs> no to both. And that's, this is kind of where I'm going to get to as the launch pad for creating a, a coherent system. And then lastly, if elect and saved are not synonyms, what is the point of election? Well, why... Why don't I think that elect equals saved? Because equating the elect and saved leads to biblical incoherent statements. For example, the nation of Israel was elected or chosen by God, Deuteronomy chapter 4, 37, chapter 7, 6 and 7, those that I read. And this election refers to the people born in the line of Abraham to create Yahweh's people. But all, if not most, Israelites were not saved. They were not followers of Yahweh. You, you can read the exile to learn that. This leads to logical questions. If these apostate Israelites were elect, how could they not be saved? And how could God's election fail? Now, consider Romans chapter 9 through 11 that the reversal of Israel's election to non-election status. This reversal was designed to enable Gentile salvation. It was settled before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Therefore, Israel's national election cannot have meant salvation, since for God's plan for the Gentiles to be coherent and work, many Israelites had to, or had to not be saved, even though they were elect. Non-elect people, Gentiles, could convert, and so their non-elect status did not mean that they were beyond salvation. That leads us to thoughts and realizations like, the salvation of the non-elect Gentile was predestined before the foundation of the world. Ephesians, again, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. So if the terms elect and saved synonyms, God predestined that the destiny of each made in real time in the day of Abraham would be reversed, at least in part later on. So I hope you can get the picture of where the issue really lies. And this is where I wanted to give my solution. And there's other scholars that touch upon that point. It's pretty simple and it's really not novel. I'm just going where the evidence can push you, where the text itself can lead you into a coherent system. Election and salvation must be distinct, although related things. So, everyone saved was elect, but not all elect were saved. There is a remnant within the elect. The remnant is not synonymous with the elect. Okay? If you can imagine a circle with the word elect in it, and within that circle is another smaller circle that 
is the saved people. Okay, that's the remnant. So here's some ramifications for that solution, especially factoring in the non-elect, what this proposal means. There are elect who will be saved. There are elect and non-elect who will not be saved because elect is not a synonym for saved. There are also non-elect who will be saved. This last thought should not sound strange since non-elect equals Gentiles and many of them and are continuing to be saved today. I'm a Gentile. I was not elect of the national of Israel. But I was saved. And I would, I would venture to say that most of the people listening to me now would agree. I don't know, honestly, I don't know any ethnic Jews who are Christians that uh, at least are one of my listeners or one of my followers. I'm sure there's some, but this leads us to what is the point of election, right? I mentioned that as the last question I had. What I say here will be logical, logically akin to what I said about the real meaning of, ba- of baptism um, once before is simply that election meant simply that Israel alone had direct access to the true God and his true worship. They had direct access to revelation. They had direct access to the assignment of worship and how it is to be performed. They're given the most direct path to redemption. They're made as the conduit uh, conduit of all of that redemption for all. And they had to choose the obedience of faith to benefit from that from that access. You see that in chapters Hebrew or Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. I would further suggest that when Paul uses election terminology, he has this view of election in mind, and that doesn't interfere with what he says in Romans 8, in what's often called the golden chain of election at the, at the end of that chapter. Um, and so what I would do is, if you, like I described the elect and the saved, you have a small circle of the saved within a circle of the elect, that saved is how Romans 8 would apply. The saved within the elect who are predestined, called, justified, glorified, that language. Since all the saved were elect, they can be described in Romans 8 terms, but all the elect cannot be so described. Okay? If you can just imagine a circle that saved is that description, the saved within the elect is that description of Romans 8. So go ahead Try that out. Just read Romans 9 through 11. And while you're doing that, read closely for comments about unbelief and apostasy. That discussion must include the book of Hebrews, as I noted earlier, and it inevitably gets into this topic of eternal security, whatever that means. And yes, I'll I'll talk about that later on, because I think that this discussion inevitably leads to whether or not you can lose your salvation. So I'll, I'll talk about that later. But election was that it was not to be understood as synonymous of salvation. Never was. Rather, the saved were a subset of the elect. Okay? So I from that, I'll draw these conclusions. 
Everyone saved was in fact elect, but not all the elect were saved. So it is more accurate to say that there was a remnant within the elect. And so the remnant is not synonymous with the elect. You know, when you read the Bible, we you find that the non-elect, Gentiles, there were, there were many who were in fact saved. You know, especially when you read the Old Testament. One example is if you read the book of Jonah, um, God saved a whole city of non-elect. He, he determined that it was to be Nineveh that was to be saved. Those were Assyrians. Assyrians who, had, who de- played a major role in the deportation of northern Israel. So, you know, I draw the conclusion from Paul's language that Israel was set aside, that their unbelief was actually key to Gentile salvation. The apostasy of the elect led to many Gentiles being saved and, in fact, replacing those elect Israelites as Yahweh's people, the inheritors of Abrahamic promises. You know, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it even says that if you believe in Christ, you are a descendant of Abraham. You are the inheritor of the promises. The result was one people of God, Jew and Gentile equals the church. Okay? Saved saved Israelites, saved Gentiles, then and today are the church, God's people. This meant in turn that The one people of God was therefore ultimately composed of elect and non-elect. Paul, in his prelude to his explanation of all this in Romans chapters 9 through 11, gives us the famous, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the foreknowing, predestining, uh, justification, etc., the chain, what's called the chain of salvation in Romans 8. There's no indication that he was speaking only of Jews there, as what he says in Romans 8 is true of all believers. The wording of Paul is interesting for the position that I'm asserting. He does not use the word election in the description. That word election is not in that chain. He does not speak of Jew only. He tells us more broadly that God predestined the salvation of some, a remnant, the composition of which he will explain in the next three chapters, Romans 9 through 11. So, you know, I think that Romans chapter 8 through 11, chapters 8 through 11 is so intensely created in a lot of these creeds and confession, confessions that it, it tends to ignore a lot of the selection language in the Old Testament. But it's the Bible. So you have to create a coherent system with both. But uh, I just want to read Romans chapter 8, starting with verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's a very famous verse. Um, Everybody, everybody uses that. You see that. And it's, it's very widely applicable. But starting in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That firstborn means preeminence, not the first ever born. Uh, Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, you know, from that, I want to move on to the next set of issues. If the saved are composed of the elect and the non-elect brought into the family by God's choice via Israel's apostasy, what does this say about eternal security of the saved? So I need to make a couple of observations as a prelude to what I'll say, and I urge you to think about whether you agree or not. And I ask you to just listen to me carefully, okay? One, apostasy is an evil act of rebellion. It's wicked in God's eyes. Two, apostasy is a subset of general wickedness, or in other words, other sins are wicked as well, showing disloyalty to God. Three, the Old Testament gives us examples of people who really did believe in Yahweh, but who committed evil acts, such as murder, adultery. I mean, you have David, who's the ultimate example but still called a man over God's, a man after God's heart. Four, therefore it seems that of all acts of wickedness, the one that results in Yahweh's rejection is unbelief, okay? The forsaking of him as one's God in favor to another God or, or, or no God at all. Five, the person in number four could legitimately be called an unbeliever with respect to Yahweh as the one true God. Now, it's interesting that Paul does in fact relate the forsaking of elect Israelites to their unbelief. This is perhaps the most clearly articulated in Romans um, chapter 11, verses 20 through 23. And I want to read those for you. Actually, I'll include 24 here. They and they who is the elect Israelites who are set aside, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, or I'm sorry, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So what can we learn here from Paul? Well, that the Israelites who were elect forfeited salvation because of unbelief. You can see Jude 5 here as well. Uh, I say Jude 5 because it's just one chapter, so Jude verse 5. As elect people, if they would have believed, they would have been spiritually saved and not condemned as unfaithful. 
If God was able and willing to set aside these elect who did believe, he will not he will not spare you. Who's a the you, quote unquote you? Who is Paul addressing as quote unquote you? Gentiles who were allowed entrance into the people of God through faith. Paul says that God expects them to quote unquote continue in his kindness. So, my view, this revert refers to God's offer of salvation to them, the non-elect. Paul also curiously says that if the unbeliever, or the failing Jew who was elect, does not continue in their unbelief, they will be quote-unquote grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So did you catch that? Paul appears to be clearly saying that just as was the case with the elect of Israel, God can and will set aside those who don't continue to keep believing and can graft those who do believe and, we presume, keep believing. So, I I just want you to entertain this question. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just trying to get a, a thought experiment going here. Is there... Or will there be anyone in heaven who does not believe? That is, are there anybody in heaven who do not follow Yahweh or have rejected Christ? I think you and I, everyone, most people would say no. Of course not. You can't be an unbeliever in heaven. And I think this is the point of the passages in Hebrews, chapters 2 through 6, that I wanted to sort of create or wanted to bring in. In the, you know, what I said earlier, the writer of Hebrews is genuinely concerned that those who profess to follow Christ would fail in their faith or belief. Now, you have to juxtapose that with Romans 11 with Hebrews for some perspective. Uh, And I'll just read a series of verses that juxtaposes these views. So, Romans 11, chapter 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So, do not become proud, but fear. Romans 11, chapter 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Okay, now Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart lead you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews chapter 3:19 So we see that they were unable to enter that's referring to the Israelites in the Exodus because of unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 that I quoted just just now just previously is especially important because it links falling away the Greek word apostasia with unbelief. They are mutually defining. The bottom line is that regardless of what profession we make or have made in terms of faith in Christ, we must believe to have eternal life. I mean, John 3.16 makes that clear. What else? We are not eternally secure because of a prayer we prayed at some point in our past, if we do now believe, if we do not now believe, 
There is no assurance without belief. This is where I'm getting at. There's no security without belief. No one goes to heaven who does not believe the gospel or whatever revelation God gave to them to elicit a faith response as in the Old Testament before the work of Christ. We have to believe. I think at this point it's important to point out that a person can sin and sin very badly and still be believing. There are plenty of examples of this in the Bible and even in the Old Testament. Unbelief should also not be equated with doubt, okay? I, want, I do want to make that, that clear. There, well, I'll say this. There, there's ex- scriptural examples of that too. I mean, think about so- uh, Thomas, doubt, doubting Thomas, or, or the psalmist or prophet who asks where God is in a time of trouble. You see lots of those. I would go further and also say that unbelief is also not the instance where a believer succumbs to fear or persecution. Unbelief is a conscious decision of the heart that no longer believes the gospel, that one no longer wishes to follow Christ, Yahweh. It is spiritual apostasy, choosing another God or choosing to not believe any God at all. No one is in heaven who does not believe. And that is the point um, that anybody who would disagree with me has to show otherwise, okay? That's the central point, belief. I think it's noteworthy in light of this that in the long list of what can't separate us from God's love, unbelief does not appear. Why is that? Because that can separate us from God's love. In fact, it keeps us from God's love shown to us in Christ. No sin of the flesh can remove us from the family of God. The only thing that keeps us from God's family is unbelief. Salvation is by grace, through faith. God's part and our part. Both are essential, but one is primary. This is hard for us to swallow if one was raised Protestant because of an exclusively, I'll say forensic, view of justification. A decision to believe at one moment of time solves everything. I would say that we must believe, no matter what point in life we are at, once we are awakened by and to the gospel by God's Spirit, we cannot believe and then not believe and still have eternal life. I would reference John chapter 3, verses 36 and 37. No one is in heaven who does not believe. It may be equally hard for non-Protestants since the issue is not works either. Okay, I want to make that I want to make that very clear. I'm not defending Catholic or Eastern Orthodox theology. We cannot earn salvation through faith because salvation is extended by grace. Grace has the priority. Were the gospel not first extended to us, there would be nothing to believe. Rather than seeing saving faith as a one-time decision, I would suggest that Paul saw a decision to accept Christ as the Messiah and Savior as the beginning point of saving faith or belief. He would not have said that after such a decision, one could choose not to believe and still have eternal life. It's at this point that one could wonder if Paul would have said 
Well, if they no longer believe, they never really believed in the first place. You know, you see a lot of people in the reform camp answer this this way, you know, sort of referring to, I think it's John 8. Uh, I'll have to look that back up. But there's this, there's a verse that's saying if they were not of us, so on and so forth. You see John MacArthur quote that a lot. Look, and, and many others in the reform camp, you know, sort of cite that. But look, I don't really care how anyone answers that. Since what needs to be done with such a person is the same no matter what the answer is. The person needs to hear and believe the gospel. I don't really care to parse them psychologically or spiritually beyond that issue. Only God knows the heart. So in light of all this, someone will surely ask, do you believe someone can lose their salvation? Or are believers eternally secure? You know, I think most people would say yes. I I think the vast majority of believers would say yes. Um, I want to put it this way. I don't really like how that question is framed, since, for me, it does not capture what the Scripture teaches. By way of response, I'd rather ask the asker which one of these propositions they would deny. Everyone who believes the gospel will be saved by grace and not by merit of their own. Everyone who believes the gospel will be eternally secure. Everyone who does not believe the gospel, rejects it, will not be saved regardless of works. Everyone who does not believe the gospel will not be eternally secure. Someone might ask, can someone who stopped believing, who believed, or let me put it this way, someone who believed stopped believing, and if they did, what would that mean? You see what I'm saying? Same response. Which one of these propositions would they deny? Everyone who believes the gospel will be saved by grace and not by any merit of their own. Anyone who believes the gospel will be eternally secure. Everyone who does not believe the gospel, rejects it, will not be saved, regardless of works. Everyone who does not believe the gospel will not be eternally secure. Which one of those would you have to deny? See, I hope you can kind of see my thought process on it. It's a very uncomfortable question. I just don't like the que- I don't like how that question is framed. And, you know, it, it's kind of like, why, why would you be concerned about that? If you, if you are saved and you believe, and you truly do believe, what concern of it is, is it of yours that you'll not believe later on? So, I, I take Hebrews chapter 6 as a genuine concern, but hypothetical hyperbole. The writer of Hebrews truly fears that people will turn from believing and, like the elect Israelites, suffer rejection by God. But we must add that Paul said in Romans 11 that the rejected can be brought back in if they believe. But the writer expresses what he has experienced. It is exceedingly rare unto impossibility that those who decide to not believe actually come back to faith. Why? Because they have to put their faith in precisely what they rejected, the crucifixion of the Son of God for the sin of the world. So, uh, what I want to do is, 
give some summary statements. God does indeed foreknow all things real and possible. He foreknew all things that happen, and he foreknows all possible events that don't happen. God predestines events, but he does not predestine all events. He certainly does not predestine events that never happen, else they would have been predestined. (laughs) He also does not predestine all events that do happen. Okay? There's examples of this. Um, But the idea that God does not predestine all events that do happen, you see this with the fall, sin, and evil doing, is based upon the biblical fact that foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. I'll put it another way. Just because God can foreknow an event, that is no guarantee that he predestined the event. I'll give an example. First uh, Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 14. That's an example that sh- that series of events shows us very clearly if foreknowledge does not result in or necessitate prede- predestination. It's not equivalent. In that passage, God foreknows things that never happen because human decisions change the circumstances. Very simply, God foreknew things that never happened. And this tells us that foreknowing things does not necessitate their predestination. So here's an idea in a syllogism. God foreknows all events. God foreknows events that never happen. Therefore, the fact that God foreknows an event doesn't require it to come to pass. Therefore, there is no cause and effect relationship between foreknowledge and predestination. Related, God foreknows all events. Some of those events actually happen. Therefore, God foreknows events that actually do happen. We know from 1 Samuel uh, 23 that the fact that God's foreknowledge of an event did not mean the event had to happen. Therefore, if God foreknows an event that does happen, we cannot conclude that event was predestined to happen just because God foreknew it. God may have predestined events that actually happen, but he also may not have. There is no necessary link between foreknowledge and predestination. We don't know if an event that happens was predestined on the basis of God's foreknowing it. God would have to tell us he predestined the event for us to be sure that he did that. Scripture does tell us that God predestines some events. The entrance of sin into the world were foreknown by God. That doesn't mean that he predestines sin's occurrence. <clears throat> you know, you have, the, and, and this is where I think a lot of Reformed theology sort of fails in its strength because you have what's called a covenant of works and then a covenant of grace. And it's like you have, it's like they assume that free will was completely free, you know, in the Garden of Eden. And then after the Garden of Eden, Everything was just predestined, and it's just—it's a very incoherent system. I think it fails on many on many levels. Um, you know, sin's entrance into the world and all acts of evil exist because humans and divine beings have free will. Free will, freedom—freedom freedom to make choices between alternatives, including alternatives that God would not be pleased with, that He mourned over—is an attribute humans share with God. Since we are God's imagers, 
his representatives on earth to be steward kings over the earth, we have to have this ability. If there is no free will, there is no imaging of God. Okay? If, we're, if we are to be adopted into an Edenic family with God, we have to have this attribute to properly image God. To remove, to remove free will from us would be to undo our status as image bearers. It would take away the imaging status given to us, all humans, by God himself. Freedom and imaging are inseparately linked. It is foundational to our being like God and becoming like Christ. Okay. Since Adam and Eve were created beings and not God, they were lesser beings. They lacked omnipotence and omniscience, and wisdom to the degree that God has them. Since they were not God, it was possible for them to use their freedom to make a choice that was not what God would make. When tempted, they did so and fell. Okay? And Jesus reverses this during the temptation in the wilderness after he was baptized. He received the attempts of temptation but he had no actual temptation you know internal temptation because he was perfect he defeated satan in that sense that adam could not god deemed granting free will to humans preferable to not giving them free will and making them automatons or robots making them incapable of making a choice that God would not have been pleased with. Alienation from God would be the conduit for humankind learning things about God that would be unknowable without the entrance of sin, like forgiveness, redemption, displeasure, and judgment. God was no, under no obligation to inform humans about his attributes, and so we cannot draw the conclusion that God had to allow or had to allow sin for humans to learn who he was, okay? They knew who he was before the fall. We see this in hindsight. Since God is God and perfectly holy, and since he is perfectly free, he himself could not have made any choice that he would be displeased with. That would contradict his holiness. He himself is the standard for what is right and holy, and so such a possibility is nonsensical. We image God. The fact that he is also capable of making choices should not be understood as though he images us and is capable of error. He's not. The fact that God is working to restore Eden means that his human children will be like the original human couple in the eschaton, the end times. We will be like the unfallen Adam and Eve. We will also be glorified, having been given new bodies, we will be God's imagers, only this time fulfilling his original intention. There, is, there will be no external temptation to sin. There will be no presence of evil. We will not feel the unredeemed urges of our old fallen body. But we are not God. We are still inferior as created beings. All we are is contingent on him. This means that in the end times, while we are still capable of making choices that displease God, we won't, since there will be no evil to choose, no temptation, and no urge in that direction. We will be adamic, minus any choice for evil. 
All acts of evil extend from the combination of our fallen and perfect condition, plus the will to choose sin. God does not predestine these decisions, though he does foreknow them. God never prompts us to sin. He never predestines that we sin. God does not need sin to occur or evil to occur. We sin because we are corrupt and fallen. The fault's ours, okay? It's not God's. So in, in biblical theodicy, why there is evil, there is evil because God gave us free will, and we abuse that. We, free will in itself is not evil. God has free will. How that free will is used is the issue. God bears no responsibility for the fall in our sin, since free will is not evil in of itself. It is an attribute of God. After the fall, God is already at work to redeem humankind. He does this through the use of his spirit, his word, human beings, and divine beings, angels. His work is one of influencing human beings to make the right choices based on the revelation he gives, to respond correctly to the light he has given. God has the ability to turn... <clears throat> Any act of evil toward the end of all things as he desired. You see that in Romans 8.28. The salvation of the elect. The reclamation of the nations. The destruction and the banishment of evil. And the new heaven and new earth. This is the true definition of sovereignty. God's peerless control, control over all free will decisions. Only he has the power, wisdom, and knowledge to steer the wreckage of human evil toward the good ends he desires. To have all decisions, including the fall and evil, predestined before the event occurred makes God a, a lesser being. It, it, it makes him smaller, okay? The deck was entirely stacked and robots were making decisions that had been predestined, Okay? That, that's the idea that makes him a, a smaller god, to, to make a script and just watch it play out. God acts to ensure that there will be an elect remnant, though. He does this through individual election unto salvation. This salvation is one of the things God tells us he did, in fact, predestine. The fact that he could create an environment of elect people that can be revealed to the revelation and proper worship. And this is where I get into <clears throat> the fact of Israel. Is that's why I wanted to bring up Israel because you know I think that most theological systems tend to forget that that Israel was chosen. So we have to use we have to use the example of Israel to inform our New Testament beliefs. Because Jesus claimed to be about, I mean, the whole, he, Jesus claimed himself five times to be the entire theme of the Old Testament. So we have to use the Old Testament to inform our thoughts about the New Testament. So there's probably more I could say about this. Um, you know, like, but I, the short version of all this, what I really wanted to say is that God foreknows all events 
and in predestined certain but not all events. And he and he's not responsible for sin and evil. The biblical God is not the God of deists. He has, does, and interact with human affairs. In fact, he does so constantly, for he is behind all influences toward the gospel and righteousness anyone experiences. He can invade, quote-unquote, our world with the miraculous if he wants, in the course of influencing human beings to turn to him. But that doesn't mean that he has to create every single thing to happen and watch it play out like like he was watching a movie. So that's, I think, really all I wanted to get to. I think that sort of creates a coherent thought process that's relevant enough. I don't, I'm not really satisfied with the traditional Arminian view uh, or Wesleyan view. And I think the reform view tends to lean heavily on a certain idea rather than creates a coherent thought system. Um, there's probably more that I'll say about this later on, but this is, I think this is where our I really wanted to get across about my views about predestined, uh, predestination, election, what election really means, but also incorporate free will. Free will is important, okay? We're human imagers. We have to image God. God has free will. So, like I said, that wraps up my views. Um, I'm sure people will disagree with me, a lot of people in the reform camp, um, but... In many ways, I guess I still am reformed. I just don't. I don't like labels. Okay, I'm a Christian. That's it. And as a Christian, I think it's important we have a coherent thought process about the Bible, using all of the Bible, including the Old Testament. So, um, I'm not really sure what I'll get to next time, but uh, you'll find out when I post it. Thanks for listening.